Welcome to the Conversations with Jesus podcast. I'm Johnny Lehman, a baptized man of God who has the amazing blessings of being a husband, father, and the pastor at Divine Savior Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. This podcast is designed to bring you the self-sacrificing love of Jesus found in the Bible through 15 to 20 minute episodes that focus on relevant life issues and what God has to say about them. Check out our website, DivineSaviorChurch.com, as well as our Facebook and Instagram pages if you would like to find out more about the incredible things that God is doing through our church family. As we continue our Disciples series, we're going to look at the disciple James who had a zeal of thunder and who had glory on his mind, both personal glory and ethnic national glory and pride. As Jesus tells him, about the greatest life ever, and that's the life of being a servant of God. Jesus' zeal to save and serve recovers and redirects this apostle to an evangelical instead of legislative zeal. I'm so excited today to talk about what it means to be a slave of Christ, something that's so countercultural, and yet it truly is the most amazing existence one could begin to imagine. That's going to be the focus of this week's conversation with Jesus. As I got to dive into Mark chapter 10 this week, it dawned on me that our society is very goat-driven. Now, if you're picturing in your mind a cute little baby goat or those teams of goats that do landscaping for people, that's not the goat that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the acronym G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. People will debate the greatest football player ever, the greatest basketball player, the greatest gymnast, the greatest actress, the greatest president, and yes, even the greatest hot dog eater. In fact, I counted on my personal Google News Feed this last week how many articles were debating who is the greatest or who is better, and it averaged out to almost one a day for the entire week. We are G-O-A-T, GOAT, obsessed. And this isn't just something that adults talk about. It starts young, right? Think about it. At recess, no one wants to be picked last. No one wants to sit by themselves at lunch. And then you grow up and you have your own kids, and no one wants to be the parent with out-of-control kids or the kids that are posting crazy things on social media. In the workforce, no one wants to be underpaid, and no one wants to clean the toilets, whether it's at work or it's at home. Everyone wants to be recognized, to be known, to be praised, to be served. And this isn't merely a pride thing either, although pride is certainly at the heart of it, but it stems from a deep, dark fear of ours to be disregarded, unnoticed, and forgotten. Our culture and our sinful nature advise us to fight this fear with glory that if you can be recognized or looked up to or considered the gold standard, you'll have it all, or so their narrative says. We find ourselves panting for power, that if we can attain glory from people, life will be as it should be. But is that real glory? And if it's not, then what is? Well, here's where our God question this week comes in. The question that the disciple James needed to know the answer to, as do we, what is real glory? Does real glory sound like applause and look like awards? Is real glory all about power or something more? 
this thirst for glory happens all over the place. And as I did some own, my own personal examination, my own introspection this week, I found how quickly my heart seeks glory more than God. And the Bible says that's not just me, that's you, and that's all people. We struggle in our sin to try to find glory in all the wrong places. So what does that look like? It looks like aisle 10 at Walmart. Your child is having a fit and your primary thought isn't, I want to teach my child in this moment about sin and grace, but instead you're thinking more, you are making me look bad, knock it off. It happens when we seek to become a manager or a boss, not because we're thrilled to build up our employees and our coworkers, but because our life will get easier or so we think. It happens when we place our hope for our country in the hands of a politician's promises, thinking that he or she will be exactly what we need to give us that life of luxury, that life of happiness, instead of looking to the God who's the giver of all good things. Glory-seeking happens when we walk into church and we get peeved because the songs we're singing and the sermon we're hearing are not what we want, or we seek glory in who we date. I mean, think of dating apps today. You just swipe up and down on screens looking for people who will make us look good. Not really thinking about the number one most important thing, and that's faith. We seek glory in friend groups and look for places where we can exert our will. If any of this is sounding familiar, you and me and James have a lot in common in our own goat passion. Maybe that we're not intending to be the greatest of all time, but a different kind of goat, glory over all things, becomes our driving force in life. James was a glory seeker like you and me. He wanted to have this goat status, nothing less, and we see that clear as day in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Right after, so the first, so three verses before, verses 32 through 34, Jesus spells out his upcoming betrayal and death and resurrection, a scene in time that should have caused deep thoughts from his disciples, or at the very least, hearts concerned for him. But that wasn't where they were at. Right after Jesus says this incredible prediction, look at what James and John say. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now their boldness isn't necessarily a problem, since God wants us to pray boldly, but it's their request that reveals where their hearts were. This is what they ask of Jesus. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. These guys craved glory and power. And that's one of the reasons why James was called a son of thunder. I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who said out loud, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> if, if I ran into somebody who said that, I might question my choice of friends in that moment. That's the kind of guy James was. He was fired up. He was all about, at least at this point in time, he was all about searching for glory. And we're going to find out later that Jesus certainly grew his faith to realize what true glory is. But at this time, as James heard about what Jesus was saying about him dying and that fear of being disregarded, unnoticed, and forgotten flared up for James. If Jesus was going to die, James wanted to make sure he would be in control. He was more concerned about his glory than his Savior. And James wasn't the only one among the disciples who felt that way. What does Mark tell us? 
When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, why were they indignant? Was it because they loved Jesus? That wasn't the reason why they were so upset. They were upset because James and John had beat them to the punch. Like if you can think of a time in your life when your sibling got to your parents to ask for something before you and you were upset about it, that's the kind of dynamic going on here. For disciples, glory was security and power was their best life. But then Jesus responds in an absolutely shocking way. He looks at these goat-thinking disciples and he says, Whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody on this earth, throughout all of human history, if you ask a child the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? He or she would say, I want to be a slave. No one desires that. And this especially hits home considering that there are an estimated 50 million people across the world trapped in slavery today, including 500,000 in our own country being trafficked every single year. So what is Jesus saying with this term that was loaded back then, it's loaded today? He is saying something radical, but maybe not for the reason you're thinking. In reality, we are all slaves to someone or something at every moment of the day. All of us have this battle waging in our hearts. What is the motivating factor for you? What is leading you? What is motivating and directing you every second of your life? Well, the reality for you, dear Christian, is that you've been set free. What does Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Through baptism, you've been freed to serve. Through baptism, through faith, what leads you, what motivates you, what directs you is the grace of God. And yet, of course, Satan wants nothing more than for you and me to put those chains of sin's mastery back on. And how does he do that? How does that happen? It happens when we seek what the world seeks. And not what our Jesus says. C.S. Lewis said it beautifully when he was describing the glory-seeking that people do. And he said that out of all that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. To be a servant of Jesus, yes, it means sacrifice and we, by nature, in our sin, we don't like the idea of submitting to someone else's will, but that is the Christian faith. It's submitting to God's will. Even the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche commented once, the Christian faith is from the beginning a sacrifice. And such a mentality to be a slave of Christ, to be his servant, is not us being pushovers. This is not God saying to you, you have to let people take advantage of you. In such a people-pleasing scenario, your motivation, it may be to keep the peace in the relationship. It may be to avoid the guilt of not coming through. It may be to gain that recognition from people, but none of that is a servant's heart. To be a slave of Christ is to meet every person in your life with this thought. I want to love you as God has called me to love you. And that can mean saying no to people. That can mean having the pleasure of not having the pleasure of reaming someone out for a mistake. That can mean saying no to something you enjoy so you can be there for someone who drains you. 
And if you're like me, I examine myself and so often I seek glory in all the wrong places and I can't help but say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the times that I've sought things that took the place of where you should be in my heart. But here's the good news for us. As God hears us repent, as he thinks about who we are and the sin that so easily entangles us, he knows. Jesus knew such glory-seeking enslaves you and me. And so, and not he could have easily said, okay, you've made your bed, now sleep in it. He didn't do that. Instead, he gave his life in our place. He died for people who wanted to rip him off the throne. Jesus chose to be the ransom price, to take our place on the execution line and to give us freedom. How shocking is this? Imagine someone who right after you bear their soul to them, just like Jesus did with his disciples here in Mark 10, to have people essentially say to you that they want your spot, they want your place in life, your glory, your power, your whatever, and Jesus chose to set his life aside for people like James, for people like you, and people like me. Satan knows that such glory-seeking leads us to be bound and sold, to be trafficked and chained by evil. So what did Jesus do? He not only sought you out, he saw you behind bars. All of us, by nature, were once dead in sin, enemies of God, considering everything that came from God as mere foolishness. He found us in our slavery, in our prisons, even as we yelled and screamed against him in our sin. And we watched as the chains were released. The prison door opened and he was led away to be executed. And think about what his sacrifice accomplished for you. He freed you. He's given you a reason to wake up each and every day. He has given you a certain future. And as you think about the look on Jesus' face as he carried that cross, if you can imagine watching him go to Calvary. Imagine him looking back towards you and the face that he would have. It wouldn't be a face of disappointment in you. It wouldn't be a face of shame but it'd be a face with a resolute smile. Because Jesus went to the cross, not because he had the attitude of, oh, they messed up again, they've messed up so much, now I've got to come in and fix the problem. That's not Jesus' motivation. His motivation was love for you. That the cross becomes this most beautiful place because it's there that you get to see God's love pure, fully, the glory of God found at the cross that the world scoffs at, but for you and me, it's the most precious sight we could ever see. Whatever you feel is trapping you in your life, the kind of glory you're seeking that never satisfies and causes you never-ending restlessness, disappointment, and pain, see your Jesus at the cross where true glory is revealed. The power of the cross where Jesus became sin for us, we became the righteousness of God, and because of that, we stand forgiven at that most beautiful place. All because he drank your and my cup of suffering down to the very dregs. All because he was fully submersed into the depths of our despair. All because he saw you in chains and it broke his heart. And his love broke through. And he won the war we could never win. And his resurrection guarantees for you the greatest life of all time. A life not about power. A life not about what other people say about you. A life 
that doesn't revolve around how you feel about yourself. The greatest life of all time, when faith, when through faith we forget ourselves. As one author put it, the Christian walks each step as a servant of God and offers herself as a living sacrifice in every action, and this quite unselfconsciously in the extraordinary ordinary of daily life. We've been ransomed, we've been set free, and the life we now live belongs entirely to Jesus. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. We belong to the Lord, and that, that right there is true freedom. Martin Luther once wrote, The Christian is a slave of all and subject to all. Insofar as the Christian is free, he or she does nothing. Insofar as the Christian is a slave, he or she does all things. In other words, we've been set free by God, not for ourselves, but set free to do what we by faith long to do, and that's to love others and show them Jesus in everything we do. The Christian is not called to give up the God-given passions that he or she has, but to give up our self-prescribed purposes and attach ourselves to Jesus and his purpose. Even as we struggle with the devil's aims to put our souls back into slavery to sin, Jesus holds out his blood-bought freedom for us day after day through word and sacrament. And he says, don't ever forget, you're free now. And this freedom is not just the ability to do whatever you want, the faulty and pitiful definition our culture offers. No, it's freedom given by grace to set others free. Because people need your servanthood. Makes me think of Bud. Back when I was at the seminary, I got to coordinate different nursing home worship services. And Bud was always there. He's in his mid-90s, he'd roll up in his wheelchair, and without fail, almost every other week, he would bring somebody new to church. And by the time the year was over, we had the whole atrium and the hallway filled with residents excited to hear about their Savior. And I remember Bud coming up to me after one Sunday, and he said, Pastor, I'm not doing anything for Jesus. I just sit in a wheelchair all day. I get wheeled around. What am I doing to spread the good news? And I said, Bud... Look at all the people that are here because you invited them. See, the thing is, being a servant of Jesus, it gives you purpose no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what condition of life you're in. This isn't just a pay-it-forward sort of a thing. Realize that, just like with Bud, God puts you on this planet, ransomed you by his blood, so you can go with him into the most incredible adventure ever to go into the darkness of false glory the people are caught up in the shadows of sin and to free more and more captives and slaves by the grace of Jesus. The people here need you. Christian freedom through and through is relational. Biblically defined freedom is not self-independence but satisfying interdependence. The free Christian that you are through faith becomes deeply embedded in every relationship she has. He does not shy away from love. Christ who lives in you prompts you to give love without restraint. And maybe that sounds really good in theory. Let's get practical, right? Yes, this means the parent of one of your students in the classroom, that parent who seems to live to make your life difficult, to post mean things about you on Facebook. Yes, this means that coworker who talks your ear off about pugs and is super annoying. Yes, it means that case manager who's so unorganized. Yes, this means that classmate who latches onto you the second they see you. And yes, this means that sibling that has made a mess of his or her life. We serve them. We serve them because we've been served by Jesus and we live to free more and more slaves to sin that more and more can know the freedom to love that you and I have been graciously given 
the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the freedom that we have standing next to Jesus. And that gift was given to James too. Some think this is coincidental with God. Nothing happens by accident. There's two things I want to talk about with that. The first is the phrase that James and John said. Remember they said, Jesus, we want to be at your left and right in your kingdom. Well, the next time that Mark uses that phrase in his gospel, talking about things being left and right, you know where that is? It's when Jesus is at the cross. It's the only other time Mark uses that phrase where he talks about the criminal on his left and his criminal, the criminal on Jesus' right. I think he's making a connection there. That yeah, in life, as we follow Jesus, as we seek to be a slave of Jesus, we're going to drink our own cups of suffering and we're going to be baptized by our own intense battles against evil. But just like those criminals, if that's what it takes, if that's what it is to be at Jesus' side, oh, is it not worth it? It is. It means Jesus is there. And James, he got to experience that firsthand. This disciple, who at one time desired nothing but power and glory, became the first disciple to die for his faith. Jesus showed him what life is truly about, what real glory is. The Holy Spirit continued renewing him in seeing what the most extraordinary life of all time is all about. It's being a servant of Jesus and letting him have the final say in every moment of our lives to look to the real goat, G-O-A-T, the God of all things. And let our minds be consumed by his words. His determination for you that will never waver. And the excitement we have. Because every day you and I get to be the channels through which Jesus frees people. That's real glory. How incredible our God is. Amen. My prayers go with you as you live that servant life this week. As you interact with the people that God in his grace has placed before you to love May the Lord strengthen you and give you courage to love selflessly, to show them the amazing strength of our God, and to give the hope that only Jesus can give. God's richest blessings as you live for him this week and the rest of your life.